it's fun.
above all names. You are so great and powerful, and we need and want to humble ourselves before you now. Um, open our hearts to um, your word and your voice speaking to us today. Um, just let us have hearts of worship. Um, and Jesus, yeah. Bless this time that we are spending together in worship and in community. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We are now going to go into a time of offering. You guys may sit down. Um, we have our giving options up on the screen here. Um, you can give through text, online, and there's also a box in the back. Um, yeah, so we... Um, welcome you to just think about that. Um, ask God what he might have for you. Um, and now we're going to go into uh, another song.
Thank you for leading us, team. Thanks for doing that. I'm going to sneak right by you, Kevin. Um, it's at this time that we are going to enter into our time of prayer. And Yelena, can I have you run the mic today? Thank you. I'll turn it on first. So we're going to enter into our time of prayer. Um, this is a time that we set aside during our worship gatherings to pray for one another, um, to share how it is um, that we can be praying for you, to share um, some of the goods that we can celebrate and praise God on your behalf, and then some of the things that you're asking God to change in your life. And so it's during this time that we just open the floor up. Lena will run a mic around. You can share your name. Just remind us of your name and then how it is that we can be praying for you. Uh, what we did last week was we remembered these, and then we gathered together in little small groups and prayed about it, and I kind of liked that. We won't do that every single time. We try to switch it up, but we're going to do that again this week, and so I'm going to be writing down the prayer requests, and you're going to be remembering them as well and writing them down, because at the end of this, uh, I'm going to distribute these requests based on, okay, left side, you get these requests, center, you get these, right, you get these, and then you're going to gather around with the people closest to you and pray over those. Sound good? Okay, so now that your ears are open, ready to listen, I'm going to go ahead and open the floor, and I already saw, I know Kathleen and Tanya um, were raising their hands. Hi, I'm Kathy, and um, our good friend Cookie has mm. a bad um, bronchitis, and and she's kind of, anyway, her husband and daughter are, are both uh, nurses at the hospital, mm. hospital and so on. So we need prayer for her that she doesn't catch the COVID. So far, the first test didn't show up as COVID, so that's really good. Okay. She's a little bit compromised with her couplets. And so anyway, we really want her to get better. Yeah, okay. God, God uh, is really good, and I know will be fine but if we all pray it'll really help yeah yeah cookie has been a member of this church for a long time so we'll be praying for cookie anderson her sickness there <laughs> listen's got wheels uh, hi my name is tatiana or tanya for short so um i think we'll for them praying for uh, us to recover and healing from covid it mm -hmm. was for a long time and uh, thank you for uh, praying for my family in Ukraine and for Ukraine. Uh, it still, still, of course, has tension, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it didn't get any into the action. So my family who lives uh, close to the border uh, is safe for now, but we don't have any certain what's going to happen next. So just thank you for continuing to pray for my mm -hmm. family. Yeah. and for our country. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, we'll be praying for all them and all the stress, but I'm glad you've been able to communicate with them and get a hold of them. I do have one um, that has come in basically from live stream, and that is from Ted. Um, our very own Ted Hayward is out of town this week for his daughter's wedding, and so we're praising um, God that he gets to be part of that but he asked us to pray over his daughter's marriage um, and then pray for um, his relationship with his daughter. Um, he said that uh, he wants it to be restored like it was before his life had spiraled out of control 15 years ago, and he still feels like he's really catching up um, some lost time after that happened. And so be praying for Ted's daughter 
um, with this new marriage that she has just entered into and um, for their relationship as they are continuing to mend that. Hi, my name is Corinne. Um, I'd like to ask for a prayer for my little sister, Molly. Um, she's been uh, dating a young man uh, for some time now and um, has decided to, uh, or that she wants to be baptized into the Mormon church. Um, so prayers for um, God's guidance for my mom, especially, um, and that she would know that God has Molly. Okay, yeah, I pray for Sister Molly with that. So my name is Logan. Um, we've prayed in the past for my cousin Mackenzie. Um, and just continued prayers for her. She seems to continue to be making more and more choices, more to fit in with everybody else around her rather than what's best for her, which, you know, high school, that age, you tend to do, but it, it's going past the point of, past the point of just trying to fit it mm -hmm. in and really harming her future. So just prayers for her. Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you. Cousin Mackenzie, we've been praying for her for a few weeks, so I'm sure that'll fit. Hi, I'm Joey. Um, I just want to praise God for just his mercy in all of our lives. I think that's just been something that's been on my heart a lot this week. I mean, even like we just said, like in, in canons, like I'm so unworthy, but mm. still you love me. Um, just praise God for that, and I think just pray that his mercy is upon us if we are in Christ and just, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. That's just been encouraging to me just this week. So I hope that's encouraging to others. Yeah, that's a good online. So unworthy, but still he loves me. That's a good reminder. Hi, I'm Sally. Um, I just wanted to say um, how much I love this family. <laughs> um, occasionally, uh, like last week I was sick and I, I watched mm. by live stream just not the same oh like we're we're not meant to do this christian life alone we need community so mm. just just praise for this family and, and all the support we've received over the years oh well it's not the same without you here sally so we're glad you're here yeah uh kind of a praise on uh, my sister's boyfriend who ended up in the mm -hmm. welding accident um the one spinal surgeon finally made it to, to town and was able to do like detailed MRI stuff and came back and honestly there's no damage from it. Said that from work he has the back of a 50 year old but <laughs> that's not from the accident. And so just <laughs> huge praise for that. Oh wow, praise God. Yeah, that was a scary situation. If you weren't here the last few weeks, Chris's sister's boyfriend had a giant steel plate fall on him. So really praying for recovery there. This is always a test of how much awkward silence I can handle. <laughs> they say you should always give it the six second rule. You count to six, 
and it will feel like an eternity, but that's about how long people need to be the next person to share. Now everybody's counting in their head now, huh? <laughs> Just got to survive. I made it. What are you doing? Okay. Well, if that is all, then here's how we're going to distribute this. Uh, my pen died halfway through, by the way, but I wrote some down on my phone here. So left side, you guys are going to take um, Kathleen's request um, for prayer for Cookie Anderson and the healing um, for her with her sickness that she is currently um, going through right now. You're also going to take um, prayer for Ted and his daughter, for her new marriage, um, and then for their relationship um, that has been in the process of being rebuilt over the last few years. And then you're also going to praise God. This one's not a request, but you guys are going to praise God um, for this church family, um, for the family that is common ground, and for one another, and just the reality of the goodness that we have um, with this community. So that's you guys, left side, you're taking that. Center here, you guys are going to take Tatiana's um, praise for healing after they just recovered um, from COVID and then praying for her family over in the Ukraine um, just for that tense situation, um, for the stress that that has placed on her and just for all the, the unknowns that go along with that. So would you just pray for that situation there? And then would you also pray um, for Logan's cousin, Mackenzie, um, praying that she has made some, some not-so-good choices, as he has said so tactfully, um, that are hurting her future. And so would you just pray for her, that the Holy Spirit would be guiding her, helping her to make good um, choices and decisions. And then would you also pray um, for Chris's sister's boyfriend as he is healing, um, and as some of the results look good and look like it's moving in the right direction, just praising God for that, but continuing um, to ask for prayer for that. Right side because you're on my right here. Um, would you pray for Corinne's sister, Molly, um, for this relationship that she's in, which is sending her um, down a path away from the Lordship of Jesus? Um, it's a really scary, um, sad thing for the whole family. And so would you just pray for her? Would you pray for Corinne's sister, Molly? And would you also um, praise God, uh, as Joey shared, for his mercy? Um, would you consider the mercy that he has given us and praise God for that on our behalf. Did I miss anything? Are we good? I think we got them. Okay, did you guys get them all? If not, as you gather into a small little group to pray, try to find someone who looks like they definitely wrote them all down and know what they're doing. And we're going to spend the next few minutes um, in prayer over these things. And then I'm going to go ahead and conclude us um, when I feel like it's been about time. And so you can go ahead and gather together and pray over these things at this time.
Well, Father God, uh, we turn our hearts and minds to you, um, and thank you for being a God who hears us. Um, we praise you for so much of the work that you have done uh, in and amongst this family, um, for healing Tatiana and Anya as they have been sick, and, and for healing Chris's uh, sister's boyfriend with this accident that seemed so life-threatening, and, and just we praise you for your mercy, as Joey reminds us here. God, we praise you for so many things. And God, we also, um, we bring these requests to you, <laughs> recognizing that you are the God who hears us, and you are the God who invites us to approach your throne, um, that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And so God, we, we are in a time of need, so many of us in our lives, and we bring these things before you, and we thank you for being a God um, who hears us and offers your help. And so God, as these requests have come up to you, I just ask that, that you would work in ways only you can work. Uh, would you continue to shape our hearts and minds um, as we turn to you with these things, um, to see your will, to see your potential, to see your power in all these things. And Jesus, we trust you with these requests. And now, God, as we turn to your word, uh, would you just continue to, to make it living and active in our hearts and minds? Would you speak to us um, through the book of Hebrews today, uh, teaching us more about your son? And Jesus, we just trust you in that. So it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for leaning into that time. I'll give you another second to get your all chairs all situated and organized um, as we turn our attention now to the book of Hebrews, where we have been for the last few weeks. Uh, we have made our way through the book of Hebrews. Last week, we finished up chapter four. Uh, so we're reaching chapter five. But one of the things that I'm going to point out is we're going to back up and do a little more in chapter 4, because while the author of Hebrews, or the preacher to the church in, of the Hebrews, was concluding one point with the end of chapter 4, he was also using that conclusion to kind of introduce the next point, and so it's still kind of relevant. Um, so we're going to look at that today. If you find your way to the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and we're going to be reading into chapter 5 there. And what we're going to be seeing here in this little section of Hebrews, is the author reminding us of how much better Jesus is than the high priests, or than the priests. That Jesus is better than the priests. And this sounds a little goofy to our minds, and we're going to have to do some adjusting to kind of understand what exactly is happening here, but that's what this is going to be about, is how Jesus is better than the priests. Okay, so... A man walks into a Catholic cathedral, um, he walks into the confessional, and he takes his seat on one side, um, and the priest, sitting on the other side, opens up the window, and he says, I'm listening, my child, what is your confession? And the man begins, forgive me, father, pastor, vicar, minister, padre, priest, for I have synonymed. Sorry, that's the cleanest joke I could find about a priest on the internet, really. It really is. Uh, and I think this kind of shows something because priests in our day and age really serve as like kind of two functions. They're the butt of a lot of really crude or really inappropriate jokes that I probably couldn't share here. Or they're the headline in some pretty crazy scandal. Some news articles that aren't pretty good to hear or sometimes both. Um, and they're largely becoming, you know, kind of unimportant or unfamiliar um, to our culture and to our society, especially when you look at, you know, the last few thousand years, uh, priests have played a much larger role throughout history than they currently do now. 
And so as we talk about Jesus as better than the high priest or better than the priest, uh, it's going to sound a little foreign and a little outdated to our 21st century minds. Um, there's a little bit of an adjustment because when we think about priests, um, we typically think about, you know, some guy with like a white collar who sits in the booth and hears a confession or something along those lines. But the original audience here would have been thinking about the Levitical priesthood, okay? This, this priestly role that was instituted in the Old Testament by God to be a person, bless you, to be a person who would mediate a relationship between God and man. It was this representative um, from man to God and God to man. And the priest would interact with God on behalf of these people. And then he would come out and interact with the people and essentially teach the people then how they are to interact with God and teach them on what their standing with God is. And that was kind of the original idea. But today, that's pretty different from our understanding. Um, you know, I'm an ordained pastor. I'm not a priest. Um, and so my work often involves like preaching, administering baptism, communion, caring for people, meeting with people, counseling, um, helping to schedule, coordinate our worship. And I also, like Nick did earlier, I tell a lot of jokes that aren't very funny and that just gets everyone to shake their heads, right? Um, but when it comes to my work and like the Levitical priest's work, um, preparing animal sacrifices and upholding really strict purity laws isn't part of my job description anymore. It's very different uh, from what I do and from the original priests. But this is kind of the idea that these first century audience would have been thinking of. They would have been thinking of these priests. And if their role was to mediate this relationship between God and man, to represent man to God and to represent God to man, what he's pointing out is Jesus did this better. Jesus did a better job at this than any of the priests previous to him. And he's actually done such a good job. He's represented us so well to God that he has cleansed us of all of our sins. And he has actually given us this access to the throne that's speaking of in the end of chapter four here. And he's just pointing out how Jesus has given us full access because of what he's done. And so that's where we're going to be as we read this little section here. He's going to explain the priesthood, and this is actually going to be a section that will cover about the next five chapters. The next five chapters from Hebrews 5 almost to Hebrews 10, it's basically all explaining this priesthood model and how Jesus fulfilled that. And so this is basically going to be an introduction and a start into that as he works his way through some of the particulars. Um, but it begins here, chapter 4, verse 14. Um, where, like I said, we talked about it last week, but we're going to go back to it because now it's introducing this new idea. Um, so follow along with verse 14. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Continue on to chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, 
today I have begotten you, or today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Um, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll stop there at verse 10. And so as we're talking um, about Jesus as this great high priest, we remember that the author of Hebrews, he's addressing all of these, these problems that these new believers are having with Christianity, these questions and these doubts that they're having. They're recent converts from Judaism, and they're wondering if they made a mistake by turning to Jesus. And, and they have all these kind of theological questions and issues in their minds. And the author to the Hebrews is correcting and, and answering all those questions by just pointing over and over to the person of Jesus. That what's going to solve this problem or these issues that you have or what's going to strengthen you guys is a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. And so that's what he's doing here. He's explaining who Jesus is and how he fulfills this role of priest. And so far, he's explained a lot about Jesus. Um, in the book of Hebrews, we've looked at how he's better than the prophets, Abraham, angels. That was another really confusing one, but he's pointing to the person of Jesus. He's better than the law, than Moses. Now here he gets to how Jesus does a better job um, than the priests. And he starts out, if you notice in verse 14, he begins by saying that we have this great high priest. And this seems pretty subtle and insignificant. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's saying Jesus is good at that job, right? Um, but this is actually the only time a high priest is ever called great. Because if you look through the story of the Bible and the story of this role or this position of high priests, they never were great. This is really <laughs> a statement to contrast how Jesus did a good job. And most of the high priests, um, frankly, did not. In fact, the entire story of humanity is almost essentially a story of a lot of bad high priests. Um, some like to argue that the first ever priests were actually Adam and Eve in the garden. Because of a high priest, or a priest is one who is in God's presence and is mediating this relationship between God and man in this holy place. Well, Adam and Eve did that. And they started out in this position, this priestly role, but then we know the story, what happened is they sinned, sin entered the world, they were kicked out of the garden in Eden and separated from God. Um, and because mankind was created to be in relationship with God and needed to be in relationship with God, but now because of sin were separated, they needed a way and we needed a way for that relationship to be restored, for there still to be a connection with God. And so this role of priest came about because we needed to be in God's presence. But because of sin, we couldn't be in God's presence. Because of sin, God's presence actually became dangerous for us, and we needed this position for us. And it's pretty important to recognize that, like, okay, God didn't need a priest to talk to us, or he wasn't afraid to, like, catch our yuck or to touch us. It's actually we're the ones who needed it because of our sin, because just being in God's holy presence is actually dangerous for, like, an unclean, sinful person. It's like a dirty dishcloth going into a bucket of bleach. Um, it's just going to be basically wiped clean. And you kind of see this happening in the Old Testament a lot. 
um, when the Israelites received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, God said, don't touch the mountain where my presence is physically dwelling right now, or you will die. Don't touch it. And then there, were, there was the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence um, literally dwelt. And if you touch the Ark of the Covenant, straight up dead. There was a story of this guy named Yuza, or Uza, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, but they were hauling the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, and it wobbled a little too much, and he just thought, oh, I'll just make sure it doesn't fall, touch the Ark of the Covenant, done. A holy God cannot, like, we cannot be in his presence. We had to have this priest in order to mediate our presence with God's presence. And so this is a really important job. Um, when it came time to institute this role of the priest, um, you know, it started with the tabernacle, and then eventually it got to the point where they had a temple. And every single day, the priest would be in the holy place making sacrifices for the people, um, sacrificing animals um, for these blood atonements that would cover up sin. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the high priest would enter into the very center of the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, and he would go in there with a bowl of blood, and he would splatter it on the mercy seat there to make atonement for the entire nation and all the people. And this was a really important job, and basically the forgiveness of the people kind of rested on like his shoulders and the job that he was doing. And all the people were watching with anticipation of this high priest going into the Holy of Holies, and they were waiting to make sure that he comes out, because if it didn't work, and if he hadn't performed his duties rightly, and he didn't come out, like if he messed up, he went in there, did something wrong, he would be done, and then the people would have to basically start over and do these forgiveness, atonement, sacrifices over again. So they were waiting for him to come out, and when he would come out afterwards, he would declare that your sins are forgiven, and it would start this huge week-long celebration, and everyone would party and celebrate for a week because it's another year of being forgiven for their sins. And so this job of high priest is really important. Took it very, very seriously. It's a big deal. A lot rested on their shoulders. And Jesus here is called the great high priest. He's the one who was great. He did it the best. Because, as I mentioned, most of them were not that great. They weren't even that good. This was a really important job, but it didn't start out very good. And there aren't many examples of people in the Old Testament or even especially in the New Testament um, who were very good at all. Um, while technically Adam and Eve might have been the first priests because they like technically worked in the garden in God's presence, um, Aaron, Moses' brother, was like the official first high priest. So the first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother. He was given this task to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God and to serve in this role. And the story is recorded in Exodus when Aaron's given this job, and basically on day one, he messes it all up. Basically, day one, he's not doing his job right. If you remember the story of the Ten Commandments and Moses up on the mountain receiving them, he was up there for so long, and the people like, were getting scared, they were getting worried that he had been up there so long, he's not going to come back, that they told Aaron, you know, we don't really like this whole invisible God, that he can't touch thing. Can you make us an idol like one that we had in Egypt? And so Aaron did. And it records this story in Exodus chapter 32 that says that Aaron literally poured all this melted gold 
into a cast of a calf, and then he used a tool to shape it. And so Aaron built this thing. He's supposed to be the high priest for God, building this idol. It obviously took some thought. He, like, had a calf casting, apparently. I don't know if he made this or whatever. But it took some, th some thought, and then he shaped the thing with a tool. Once Moses comes back down the mountain, um, this is their interaction. You know, Moses sees the golden calf, mad about it, grinds it up, makes them drink it in their water. And then this is their interaction. Um, Aaron says, Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. So now he's blaming the people. Um, they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him, because they were worried he's up on the mountain. And so I told them, Whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold jewelry, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So Aaron, day one of being a high priest, blames the people for this mistake, and then just lies about how the uh, golden calf came about. It's like, it, it sounded like it took some effort. He's like, ah, we threw it in. This golden calf just came right out. Not very good, okay? But this is the family line. So Aaron was the first high priest, and it's basically going to be all of his descendants who will carry on this title, who will carry on this role. It's from his line that you have to be born in order to be a high priest. And from the very beginning wasn't good. If you keep going in the story, you just have story after story of failed high priests. Aaron's sons right after him, uh, what are they, Nadab and Abayu, they have kind of a rough story. They basically die at a church barbecue, and it's really tragic. And then Moses says, don't be sad, they kind of had it coming. And read that, it's, it gets graphic, so I'm not going to share all of it right now, because we don't have time to explain some of those things. But basically, the role of the high priest was never good. Um, it was always corrupt. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, who was Jesus most critical of? Like, who was he always being critical of and giving a hard time? It was the priests, right? It's the religious leaders, and it was the priests who were running the worship and supposed to be doing this job, because Jesus took this job very, very seriously. The role of a priest is to represent the people that Jesus loves to God, and to represent God, Jesus is God, to the people and to facilitate this worship and all of it, Jesus took that very seriously and it was not being done correctly. It was all kinds of twisted and messed up by the time Jesus got on the scene. And if you read through the Gospels, um, this is kind of a really weird deep dive, but you'll notice um, Jesus was crucified by the high priest Caiaphas. But you'll see sometimes in the Gospels that he also had to appear before the high priest Annas. And it's kind of confusing because there can only ever be one high priest. And the gospel writers don't tell us why. It just says, like, oh, sometimes he appears before Annas, and then sometimes it's Caiaphas, and then Caiaphas is, ends up being the one who crucifies him. Well, historians tell us that, you know, yes, there was only ever supposed to be one high priest. And the rightful high priest was Annas, um, who essentially was in cahoots with the Romans, um, and was a very savvy businessman and saw a lot of opportunity in being the high priest of making a lot of money. So it was Annas who was actually the one who started the whole temple currency situation and made it a requirement that you had to buy your animal sacrifices there at the temple using the special temple currency. And so when Jesus came and he flipped the temples, or flipped the tables in the temples, I mean, technically, I guess he flipped the temples later, but he flipped the tables in the temple, that whole system that he was upset about was something that Annas instituted. And Annas was basically so busy running his business and making a lot of money that he didn't have time to do the actual high priest duties. And so Caiaphas was his son-in-law, 
that he said, hey, you just help me out, do this job. And that is just a whole mess of not how it's supposed to work. And so by the time Jesus came on the scene, this important role of high priest was just all kinds of twisted up, not doing what it was supposed to do. That the ones who were supposed to represent the people were taking advantage of the people. And the ones who were supposed to represent God were doing anything but. They were representing selfish human desires. They were just representing their sinful nature. And this is what happens when humans represent God, essentially. Um, we don't measure up. And the author of Hebrews is getting to this, that Jesus is a great high priest because he is God. That no one can represent God quite that well. And Jesus is the great high priest. And he's actually completed that work of mediating our relationship with God so that we don't have to rely on another fallen human to do this work. And I think we recognize the importance of that, don't we? Because even though we're kind of done with the priesthood and with that situation, we oftentimes will still try to, you know, hold on to religious leaders as still fulfilling that role, right? That, you know, a pastor, a priest, a religious leader is still the one mediating my relationship with God. And, you know, my prayers aren't quite the same as like Evan or Nick's prayers. And we'll fall into these temptations of thinking that we still do need someone to represent God on our behalf. But what we do have to notice is that we don't, that Jesus is our high priest, that actually because of what he did, he's given us access to the throne, to God himself. And so, like, my role now as a pastor is to feed and to lead and to protect, to shepherd, but I'm not a representative of God for you. Like, you, and I'm not the only way for you to get into God's presence. Like, you actually have that access because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus has given that to all those who believe. And the, one of the reasons that Jesus has, or I guess one of the things that Jesus did to do this for us is as the next verse goes, it says that he passed through the heavens. That Jesus passed through the heavens. He's, he's doing this important work of the high priest. This isn't just kind of talking about some little thing that Jesus did. But this is one of the functions of a high priest. Jesus just did what none of the others could do. Um, because you see, when it comes to the temple, I have a little picture here of kind of the outline of what the temple looks like. And the idea of setting up the temple um, was to replicate um, the Garden of Eden, and basically this holiest place where God's presence dwelt. And the role of a high priest was, of course, to go into that Holy of Holies, where God's temple dwells. Um, and it's, again, it's recreating this, this situation where humans were able to be in God's presence freely in the Garden in Eden, and there was that place where God's presence dwelt. And the high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt, and to be that one to go in there. And it was this representation of Eden, which was also a bigger representation. There's like another really confusing graph that I could have shown you, but this one's a little more simpler. But that's also just a bigger representation of heaven and earth and our ability to be in God's presence. And so what the priest was doing was entering into God's presence in a way in which a human could here. But what Jesus did in passing through the heavens is the Holy of Holies is a pretty important place, pretty special place. Jesus 
pass, but it's a representation of heaven. Jesus literally passed through heaven. Jesus went into the holiest place. He went into God's very throne room. That when Jesus ascended, he went straight to the right hand of God, to the holiest of places. And just like how the people um, on Yom Kippur would wait for the high priest to come out and to tell them their sins were forgiven, especially when you look at kind of the, the older time, the tabernacle, you know, he would go in there and he would perform these sacrifices and the people were waiting to see if they were forgiven. And then he exited. Well, a lot of people point out that when Jesus exited the grave, just like there were two angels on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, and then the priests would perform a sacrifice and come out of there. Well, when Jesus exited the grave, there were two angels on either side of the tomb. And Jesus had passed through the Holy of Holies and performed this sacrifice, and then he came out to declare to everyone that anyone who believes in me is forgiven. And Jesus was replicating the work of a priest, but doing it to an extent that no one else could have done. And even as it told us in this passage, he didn't just do that and come out and declare it. He did that, but then he even basically said, now you can come with me. Now I have like blazed this trail, I have walked this path, and now you're invited with me. And that's what it says. It was that final lettuce statement that we looked at last week, um, where it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus went into the Holy of Holies and came out and declared our sins were forgiven. But then he says, now you have that access as well. You now can enter God's presence. You now can enter the Holy of Holies and approach God's very throne. So this is one of the things that Jesus has done for us. He has allowed us to have this access where now all believers are able to enter in this way. It's the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, right? If you're familiar with that, it's from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter explains this whole thing, and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's this reality that now all who believe in Jesus have this access, this holy of holies, this place where you couldn't go or else, done. Now we all are given access to it because of Jesus, because he completed the work of reconnecting us to God, of cleaning us so that we could be in his presence. And so when it comes to our interaction with God, I think it's pretty important for us to catch this because it plays out in so many different practical ways, especially when it comes to, you know, like our view of religious leaders or our view of people that we really respect because they're there to help us and to guide us because following Jesus is difficult. But, you know, you and I, I might be the pastor, but you and I have the exact same access to God. You can enter his throne room just as well as anyone can. The main difference between you and I is you don't have seven years of trauma from Bible school but that's a good thing. You're okay. But when it comes to our access to God, Jesus is our high priest who has completed this work, and now we actually can enter the Holy of Holies and to be in his presence. And I'll tell you, an ancient Jew would have given anything to do that, but it just seems so impossible. It seems so far-fetched. But yet this is the work that Jesus did. This is the work that Jesus did. He's the better high priest. Then, tells us a little more of 
why he's really good at his job. In verse 15 there, at the end of chapter 4, it says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so some versions will say sympathy, um, some will say empathy, um, but I think empathy is probably the best English equivalent of this word because when I think of sympathy, I typically think of like when you share something with someone and you just get kind of like the nods and you can tell that they're not really like thinking what you're sharing is a big deal and they don't really care that much and they're like, yeah, okay, I'm really sorry, like I'll pray for you and you're kind of thinking, I, I doubt they will. They don't seem to like really care that much. And sympathy to me always seems like, eh, kind of a wimpy thing. Maybe that's just my personality or my problems. But empathy is probably a closer word to this. Um, because empathy is it's supposed to be this deep emotional connection um, where you feel what the other person feels. It's, it's being in their shoes, being in their skin even, but understanding what they're going through. Now Jesus, becoming human, literally did that. That's kind of like the definition of empathy, I guess. If you were to enter into someone's experience and to feel what they feel, well, Jesus, in becoming human, entered that in this powerful way. That Jesus fully entered humanity. He lived, he breathed, he laughed, he cried, he suffered loss, he had good days and bad days. He was tempted to sin. He knows everything and he understands everything that we could ever encounter or go through. That he's the high priest who actually empathizes with us and cares for us in this way. And this is pretty significant because I think, you know, when it comes to the person of God, we're fairly familiar with this idea that God loves us, right? Um, you know, we recognize that in a lot of cultures and in our own hearts and minds, we have a hard time really holding in tension this idea that God loves us and God is love and he cares for us, and he's merciful, and God is just, and he has wrath, and he judges the wicked, and God gives evil what evil deserves, and we have a hard time holding these two in tension, and so typically, in most cultures, like, we'll go heavy on one, and light on the other, or we'll swing the pendulum too far, or however you want to say it, but we typically like to focus on one, and I think our culture probably focuses more on the God is love, right? So when we hear this, Jesus empathizes with you. We're like, oh, great, that's sweet, that's cute. Uh, anyway, teach us something new. Like, we know this. And it's not that kind of surprising to us, but if we put ourselves in the original audience's shoes, this was a drastic shift to them. This was a big adjustment, a big change. This was kind of a shocking thing, especially in the context of what a priest would do. Priests at that time didn't really care for their people very much. But... If we just look at some of the context of this original audience in Hebrews, um, kind of the three dominant worldviews or the three kind of dominant philosophical ideas of the time um, was Stoicism, Epicureanism, and then first century Jewish thought, basically. So this is a church in first century Roman Italy, um, and Stoicism was very popular. Um, Stoicism really believes in a very controlling God, but a God who is apathetic um, to humanity. And it might be the Jewish God, it might be another God. They believed in a lot of different gods, but either way, God doesn't really have any interest in you or I. He just kind of does what he does, and you're just a pawn getting moved around. And so you just have to have a stiff upper, stiff upper lip and just get over it. Bad things happen, God just does what he wants. Good things happen, uh, don't get too excited, God just does what he wants. And they just had this view of a God that was very apathetic. 
doesn't care. He's very involved and controlling, but he doesn't care for you. He'd never empathize for you. And then Epicureanism was very popular as well. And this is that there's a God, but he's totally detached from the world. These are the deists, basically. Like, I think the first time I ever heard about deism was in, like, studying American history, and you learned that the founding fathers, like Washington and Franklin and those guys, like, identified as deists. And so they're like, well, we do believe there's a God, but he kind of set everything in motion, and now it's our responsibility kind of thing. It's the deus ex machina, God outside the machine idea, basically, that God put everything in motion and was like, all right, guys, good luck. Like, I'll be over here. And Epicurean thought believed this, that, you know, God's just not that interested in what he made. He just kind of made it and left it. And then there was the first century Jewish thought, which we talked about was real twisted um, by the priests at the time. And they really emphasized what they needed to emphasize in order to get people to buy as many sacrifices as they could and to give them as much money and to feel as guilty as they could and to be as afraid of God as they could. And so they really emphasized um, how God is all wrath and judgment without sacrifice, that you guys need to be buying up sacrifices and doing this a lot or else he's going to get you, you know? And so it wasn't a picture of a loving, merciful God. But yet, the author of Hebrews here is saying, Jesus, our high priest, is empathetic, even sympathetic, as some of your versions probably have. That God actually has empathy for his people. He isn't ignoring us. He isn't apathetic to us. He isn't only just out to get us. But he actually empathizes with us and cares for us. And this would have been really shocking to the original audience. This was a huge shift. And it's because we have this empathetic high priest that it explains in verse 2 of chapter 5 here. It's because of this that he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That because Jesus became human, tempted in all the ways that we were tempted, that he deals gently with us. That he is able to empathize with what we've been through. And I know it seems like, well, gee, we know that Jesus was tempted in a lot of ways, but like Jesus didn't have like a cell phone or a girlfriend. So how was he tempted in like all the same ways? But at like the root of everything, like Jesus was tempted in every way that we could have been. He was tempted with lust. He was tempted with greed. He was tempted to abuse power or to avoid pain. He was tempted to just seek pleasure to not do the work set out for him. Jesus was tempted in every way. You know, uh, it's when he faced the devil in the wilderness and those temptations, those were like the big universal roots of all temptation. Jesus faced all of that. But he didn't sin. And I think this is a really small point, but I think it's an important point to recognize is that, okay, Jesus was tempted, but without sin, so I think it's important to recognize temptation is not sin. Um, this is just kind of a small little point, but I know for myself I really struggle sometimes because I think, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm a pastor. Why do I still have this temptation? It should be gone out of my life. But temptation in itself is not a sin. It will come up in this fallen world over and over again. It's not the temptation that's the problem, but the temptation that leads to sin. It's what we do with that temptation that matters. 
So small little point, but that is important to recognize here. And then when we look at um, this early church, um, these people who were feeling like, well, maybe uh, we just need to go back to the culture, um, stop following Jesus. Following Jesus has made my life hard. I'd rather live just like a carefree life. They're able to know that God is going to be gentle with them, that Jesus understands, that he knows the temptations and the sins that they face. In fact, he actually knows it better um, than they probably know it themselves. And I think this is important for us when maybe we get the temptation to think like, well, yeah, Jesus might know the universal roots of temptation, but like he never actually like experienced the things I experienced. But it's because that he was the one who never gave in to sin, never gave in to temptation, that he actually, I think, knows it better than we can ever understand, right? It's that whole analogy of like, well, if you just give in to the fight, then you don't really know what your opponent or your enemy like really has to offer. Uh, that's kind of the analogy that I know C.S. Lewis uses. Is like, uh, he uses an analogy of torture, and it's like, okay, there's got to be a better one than like talking about torture on a Sunday morning. But he says like, you know, if if just a random everyday person, if I was, you know, captured by enemy combatants and I was being tortured to get information out of me, or there was, you know, a trained Navy SEAL or someone who's being tortured, like, he's going to not crack and last a lot longer, and I'm going to probably at some point crack and give in. And so when we take a step back and wonder, well, who knows the most about sin? Who knows the most about torture in this analogy? It would be the guy that went through more, right? be the guy that didn't just give it. And that's the analogy that, like, C.S. Lewis gives when it comes to how Jesus really understands it better than we could because this was something he never gave in to, that he understands what sin can and will do to us. He understands, like, the pain and the heartache, the effects it has on our life to such a deep level because he committed his life to fighting it. He committed his life to resisting it. And I'm really just hammering down on this point because I really think all of our faiths um, need to increase in this God who understands us, um, who sees us, and who empathizes with us, who looks at you and says, I know what you're going through, and I know what you're tempted by, and I know you feel this weight of sin on you, but I have done the work needed to make you clean. I have given you access to God. And Jesus has experienced all of that. He's experienced all the pain and the heartache that sin could cause. And one of the worst things, I think, about sin in general is probably the conviction that comes with it. It's that work of the Holy Spirit in us to convict us of our sin and to show us that what we have done is wrong. Or uh, one of the really hard things is when you're caught, when you're in trouble for this, when you have to sit before someone that you wronged and all the words you said or all the things that you did is out to light. Like, that is one of the worst feelings. It's one of the worst things. And Jesus actually experienced that for us because it was on the cross that he took that punishment for our sins. It was basically like he had to sit there and experience that guilt, that feeling, that conviction for us. Jesus felt all of that. And so he understands. He understands. He empathizes. He's a good high priest cares about us. And then if you continue on in chapter 5 here, when you get to verse 4, this is the author here answering some questions that these early Christians would have had. Um, 
because basically there was this sect of anti-Jewish, I mean anti-Jesus Jews who were saying, well, Jesus could not have been a high priest because Jesus was from the line of Judah. High priests are only from the line of Aaron or from the Levitical family line. And so they're like, well, you can't just like decide to be a high priest. You can't like put in your application. This is just something that God like decides. And so the author here is pointing out, okay, he didn't just decide to do that. He didn't just take it on himself. But God said to him, you are my son. This is why you're able to do this job. And then he <laughs> gives this little introduction. He just throws this out there. That you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we won't get into Melchizedek too much right now because all of chapter 5 is about that. So wait two weeks. We'll know everything we need to know about this guy. But he's just pointing out how there was this other priest who wasn't from this family line who counted as a priest. And so Jesus is similar. Basically, God gets to do what he wants to do. Quit complaining. That's basically what he's saying. And Jesus is in this other category who's better than this line of high priests. And he's pointing out that Jesus is better by answering those questions. And then he talks about how Jesus is sinless working for sinners here. He's not like most other high priests. He's in a different category um, where he was actually doing the job so well actually caring for the people, not having to work it, worry about his own sin, but actually just focusing on the work of helping others. That he was a perfect representation of God to people, and he was actually representing the people well, not taking advantage of them. And that's what it talks about in verse 7 here, where it says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And it kind of goes into the obedience that Jesus had. And it's pointing out that this is how good of a job Jesus did, that this is how much Jesus cared for his work. Um, some translations will say loud cries instead of fervent cries here. Um, just pointing out that Jesus didn't have like a stoic, emotionless human experience. Like he had the advantage of being God, um, but he still felt the pain and suffering of the human condition here. And he still loved people, and he actually cried out to God multiple times on their behalf, right? One of the main roles of a priest was to offer up prayers and petitions for the people. You're representing the people. Priests typically represented themselves, right? Aaron was just like, oh, these people, you know how bad they are. They're on their own. He's not going to defend them. But the priest is supposed to offer up cries on behalf of the people. Um, it's actually in that same story where Aaron tried to cast blame on the people, Moses, obviously innocent, was talking to God on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. When he came down, Moses actually does a better job of this. When he comes down and faces God, and he actually he tells the people, you committed a great sin, but now I will go to the Lord, and perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back up to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. He's basically saying, like, don't punish them, punish me instead. And Moses is crying out on behalf of these people um, when he really didn't have to. And this is always what God was looking for out of the priests. He was looking for the priests to care about the people, to cry out on behalf of the people. And they almost never did. Almost never did. But Jesus did. Jesus did multiple times. You know, he, he cried for the people when he approached 
Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was riding down, and when he approached the city, he realized, I think it's when I stand here, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I'll just step back. But he realized that so many people were not going to believe in him. So Jesus wept over that. He's riding down the mountain. He recognizes how many people will fail to believe in him, and he cried for that reality. And then in Luke 19, it records that, that, that Jesus cried about that. That's in Luke 19 there. And then it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Um, when Jesus, he's overwhelmed with grief. And Luke records that Jesus sweat like drops of blood fell to the ground. It says sweat was so intense, it was like drops of blood. And then he cried out to God, saying, there is no other way, but yet accepting that if there isn't another way, then I will do this. Jesus cried out to God on their behalf. And then on the cross again, on the cross again, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he is feeling the weight, feeling the punishment for sin. But yet, even in that moment, he didn't make it all about himself. Because while Jesus in one moment cried that, he also on the cross prayed, cried out to God on behalf of the very soldiers crucifying him and stealing his clothes. And he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. No other high priest would have done that. But Jesus cared for the people, cried out for the people. He cares for us, cries out for us. He's made a way for us to be saved, to be clean. And he has done this all for us. And he was obedient even to the cross. So all this is explained here with Jesus as our high priest. That he has done everything necessary to restore our relationship, our connection with God. He is the one who has mediated that relationship and given us access. So now we have it. We have access to the very presence of God. And in the meantime, as we continue to to walk through this world and to follow him, he understands everything that we face, every challenge, everything that would tempt us to, to drift away, everything in the world that would pull us away from him. He understands and he knows those things and he went through it. And he says, I carried all of this for you and I defeated all of this for you. That I have done that work and just as we talked about last week, he completed that work so we just enter the rest that he has offered. That all that is left for us to do is to believe in him. He's done that work. It's over with. And so Jesus, the great high priest, has given us this access and he cares for us. He understands. He empathizes with us. So would you go ahead and bow our heads as we turn to God in prayer. So Father God, uh, we just thank you uh, for all that Jesus has done for us. Um, we just recognize, as we sang earlier, um, how unworthy we are for this. But yet you um, have done this. That you sent your son to do what no one else could do, to go where no one else could go, um, to restore this relationship. And so now, God, uh, we just make it our purpose in life to give you glory, um, to share this story, to share the reality of the disconnection that should be in place between us and you, but yet, because of your son, because of the sacrifice of him, better than any sacrifice that a high priest has ever done, because he gave himself that we now can be in a relationship with you again. And we just praise you for that. And we just desire to see your glory 
on this earth, uh, in Rapid City and beyond. So God, would you just continue to, to show us more about who your son is and to help us communicate that message of the gospel to the world. And now, God, um, we just turn to you in worship, um, praising you um, for the work that you've done in and through us. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray.
around, church, as you go on this day, would you go with the words of Ephesians chapter 3, that in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And now I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So grace and peace, common ground. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful week.